You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and may be found on page 798 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. At this point in the Gospel, Jesus is drawing closer to Jerusalem. He's been healing, teaching, and preaching. The crowds are following him, and he's drawn more and more attention. The Sadducees have just tried to catch him and embarrass him in a theological debate but he's outwitted them at every attempt. So we arrive at our text, Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. And this time the Pharisees give it a try. Hear these words for the church today. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? None was able to give him an answer. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a seminary student, I was worried about doing things the right way. I wanted to stay between the lines, jump flawlessly through all the flaming hoops toward graduation and ordination. I remember sharing this with my parish internship mentor, a pastor named Bill Seal. I told him I was a rule follower, and I would do whatever it took to get through all these requirements and exams and interviews. Other seminary students and I would quiz each other on what we thought the trick questions might be at some of these ordination interviews along the way with our presbyteries. We'd ask each other questions like, would you serve communion at a hospital bedside without your session approval? Or... Would you baptize a baby in the NICU because the parents were worried the child may not live 
even though you knew baptism was not necessary for that child's salvation, and you knew you were not ordained yet. We ask these kind of hypothetical questions with an odd sort of fascination. How far are you willing to go to follow the rules? What theoretical or theological trap can we catch each other in? And all these anxieties, Bill kindly and patiently replied to me, I wouldn't worry too much about all that, Elizabeth. Rules are important, but not more important than people. As a pastor, always lean on the side of love. When you're wondering what to do, consider what the loving thing would be, and just do that. We know the Pharisees were trying to test Jesus. Our text introduces the scene with the reminder that Jesus had just shut down the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees want to give it a go. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? There are 613 commandments in the Torah. What kind of a question is that? How is a person supposed to keep track of all these rules, let alone pick a favorite? Having grown up attending the synagogue, studying scripture, and sharing discussions in the rabbinical tradition, Jesus answered their question wisely. He didn't fall into their trap. He reaches into his deep understanding of scripture and responds with two positive commands from the Torah. You shall love the Lord your God, from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments, Jesus says, hang the law and the prophets. Lean on the side of love. Debbie Thomas points out that at this point in the story for Matthew, Jesus' crucifixion is only days away. Death is around the corner, and he's running out of time to communicate the heart of his message. When he's asked by these men what command matters most, he doesn't say, believe the right things. He doesn't say, maintain doctrinal and personal purity. He doesn't say, worship like this or even read your Bible every day, or preach the gospel every minute. He just says, love. That is his message. This is Christianity distilled down to its essence. Love. Love God. Love neighbor. It sounds so simple. But golly, do we ever get it wrong time and again? We get caught in the weeds. We disagree and argue over what the church ought to be, what it means to be a Christian. We've almost always been that way. In the early church, Christians argued over whether Gentiles could be Christian, or if they were let into the church, whether they had to be circumcised in order to stick around. Fast forward a thousand years into the church, and in 1054 CE, that's the years that's known as the Great Schism, the great divide between the Western Church and the Eastern Church that produced the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox tradition. The Bishop of Rome excommunicated the Bishop of Constantinople and the whole Eastern half of the Church. So the Bishop of Constantinople excommunicated the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. 
and then the whole Western church. The underlying issue was a theological question concerning the internal relationship, then God. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son, as the Western church believe, or does the Holy Spirit only proceed from the Father? That's what the Eastern church believed. Now, I want to just say that I got this correct in my church history class, but on my final exam, I wanted to write down, how could anyone truly know? How could we be so certain as to not leave a little room for mystery when it comes to understanding the internal relations of the Holy Trinity? For another church disagreement, we got to the 1600s and to the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. The Dutch Reformed Church almost split over the issue of supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. Say that three times fast. I know you all know what that means, but in case you've forgotten, the question that was argued was whether God decided to send the Messiah before the fall in the Garden of Eden, because God knew that would happen, or did God decide to send the Messiah only after the fall, because that's when a Messiah was necessary? So the superlapsarians argued that God knew the fall would happen, and so the decision to send a Messiah had already been made before the fall. The infralapsarians argued the opposite. Again, right belief mattered so much that the denomination nearly split right down the middle. Today we wonder why anyone would think we could actually know the answer to this question on this side of glory. Finally, the last one, is last example, is a story that comes from Marcus Borg. It takes place in the late 1800s in North Carolina. A small-town businessman from a remote community in the mountains of western North Carolina went to the big city, and there, for the first time in his life, he saw an ice-making machine. Now, machines that could make artificial ice were a recent invention. He thought this was wonderful because it meant you could have ice all summer long. Ice cream in the summer is pretty great. So the man returned to his small town, and he told his Baptist church all about this great new invention. Within a month, the church had split into ice and no ice Baptists. The theological issue in this case was a question of whether it was a violation of the natural order to establish God or to make ice out of season. If God wanted us to have ice in the summertime, after all, God would have raised the freezing temperature of water, some argued. I don't know how factual that story is, but it is entertaining, and it's not hard to believe. <laughs> but the point of all these examples is that Christians have a history of being concerned about believing the right things, like infant baptism versus believer or adult baptism. So much so that sometimes we have made being a Christian very complex, as if it's about getting all of our doctrines right. But being Christian, I would argue, Matthew is saying, being Christian isn't so much about right belief as it is right practice. John Calvin challenges us to put things into two categories what's essential and what's non-essential. And when you distill most of our theological questions down to those two categories, very little is actually essential. 
Baptism, is it sprinkling of water or dunking in a whole pool? Calvin would say, it doesn't matter. What matters is that it happens, that it is available to people, that baptism happens in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Communion, is it grape juice or fermented wine? Calvin would say, it doesn't matter. What matters is the cup is made available to all who want to partake. We can drive ourselves crazy when we split hairs and try to figure out which rules are the right rules. Which rules do I have to follow? Which ones are you supposed to follow? But if we distill it down, if we distill down those 613 rules found in the Hebrew Bible, Jesus says, the takeaway is, the essential thing is, Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. It is every bit as simple and every bit as hard as that sounds. We live in a culture that throws the word love around all the time. We love our favorite Netflix show. We love our favorite band. We love our favorite movie star. We love going on vacation, reading a good book, watching our favorite team. We love bacon or chocolate or sushi or a good wine. Our problem is that we are shaped by our cheap use of the word love. Shaped as we are by films and music, even sometimes contemporary Christian music, novels and gushy Instagram and Facebook posts, we tend to think of love as a feeling. We associate it with the feelings that arise out of our own enjoyment of something. We don't think of it as a discipline, as a practice, an exercise, as something that requires effort. We say we fall in love. We say love is blind, that it happens at first sight, that it can break our hearts. We talk about love as though we have no control over it at all. But this is not how Jesus describes love. Jesus doesn't say, I hope love happens to you. He says love is the greatest commandment. It's not a matter of luck or accident. It's not something that comes easy. It's something you do. It's something you choose. In fact, Jesus says it's a matter of obedience to the one we call Lord. So if this great commandment, to love, is the greatest of all, we ought to ask ourselves whether we are living like it is. Are we living as though love were the greatest commandment of all? What would it cost us to take Jesus' version of love seriously? We have a God who asks for our love, not our fear, not our piety. We have a God who wants us to love God's children. We have to do that. God asks us to love them, not to shame them or to judge them. It's no coincidence that Jesus links love of God with love of neighbor. Each one of those commands reinforces the other. We cannot love God while refusing to love the ones God loves. Neither can we ourselves, can we love our neighbors in a meaningful way if that love does not come from God. Only God's love is inexhaustible like that.
So the motion of our hearts must be cyclical. Love of God, making possible love of neighbor. And love of neighbor, putting flesh and bones on our love for God. In his commentary on the gospel, Lutheran minister Clayton Schmidt writes this. He says, to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul seems nearly impossible when we think of love as an emotion. How does one conjure up feelings for something as remote, mysterious, and disembodied as the concept of God? We cannot look into God's eyes, wrap our arms around the spirit, even see the face of Jesus. Likewise, loving our neighbor is difficult. If love is merely a passive response to the person next to us, we are likely to be more often repulsed than moved to love. How can one legitimately look into the face of an enemy and feel unqualified love? It is nearly impossible. But biblical love is not passive. It is not something that occurs to us without our control or will. Biblical love is something we do. The command is to love God, love neighbor. The call is to follow the footsteps of Jesus, the one who stood in the midst of his accusers and declared love, the ultimate rule to follow. The call is to weep with those who weep, to laugh with those who laugh, to feed the hungry, to welcome children, confront oppressors, and comfort the oppressed. Our call is to love, to hold each other close, to guide each other home to God. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.